Good evening, Raleigh. It is Tuesday, October 23rd, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. I'm DeAndre Jones. And I'm Jay Klangwan. We thank you for tuning in. Tonight, our contributor, Jay, invited some pres- representatives from different student political organizations here on campus to hear what they think about ongoing about the ongoing political race. And Lucia Moser has for us some of the latest happenings from the art world around Raleigh. In addition, DeAndre spoke with an officer of the NC State Mounted Police, and Gene Zernoff is back with something new from the science world we'll bet you didn't know. But before all of that, here's Jasmine Shepard with our local forecast. Jasmine? Thanks, Jake, and good evening, Wolfpack. I know you guys are loving this weather right now as we reached a high of 79 degrees this afternoon with no rain in the forecast for tonight, with the low expected to be 51 degrees. Tomorrow, another awesome day seems to be in the forecast with a high of 81 degrees and a low of 52. Once again, no rain in the forecast and sunny skies above. Thursday, we're going to see another beautiful day with a high of 80 degrees and a low of 57. No need for an umbrella because no rain is expected. They say good things don't last forever, as Friday it's looking like a 20% chance of rain with a high of 71 degrees and a low of 60. Mostly cloudy skies are going to be in the forecast. Saturday, we might see rain with a 10% chance of rain and cloudy skies. The high will be around 68 degrees with a low of 55. Sunday, keep those umbrellas around because there's a 30% chance we will be experiencing a few showers and strong winds with the high expected to be around 60 and a low of 45. Be safe out there, Wolfpack. But keep your heads up because next week, great weather is expected as we kick off our homecoming. And that's all for the weather. Have an awesome week. Thank you, Jasmine. And now we turn to Andrew for the latest in the news. Andrew? Thanks, DeAndre. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell more than 240 points today, a seven-week low. All but two of the Dow's 30 components were down. Intel and Microsoft had small gains. Fidel Castro made a public appearance today after reports earlier this week that the former Cuban leader had suffered a stroke and was close to death. The 86-year-old had not been seen since the Pope's visit to Cuba in March. And the election is two weeks away, and last night was the final presidential debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. Most polls named President Obama as the winner, but the actual influence of the debates on voters has been questioned by much of the media. Tonight is a debate between four third-party candidates, Jill Stein, Gary Johnson, Rocky Anderson, and Virgil Goode. It will be moderated by Larry King and can be seen on C-SPAN and the Internet. And that's the news. Thanks for that, Andrew. Over the past several weeks, our contributor, Jay Tomlin, has been interviewing students from various political groups on campus in order to gauge their feelings on various issues facing our country. Here now are Clay Pittman of the Student Democrats and Kyle Turvo of the Student Republicans here on campus to share their thoughts on the current election cycle. And here to facilitate the discussion is Jay Tomlin. Thank you, Jake. Uh, Can you gentlemen please introduce yourself before I start asking questions? Um, I'm Kyle Turvo, junior and majoring in political science and... uh, here with College Republicans. Uh, I'm Clay Pittman. I actually graduated from state last December. Um, now I'm working in the communications department for the State Democratic Party and helping out the college dems here on campus. Thank you, guys. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the questions here. All right. During the second presidential debate, there is a dispute over President Obama's comments the day after the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi on the anniversary of 9-11. Governor Romney claimed that President Obama did not call the, the attack an act of terror initially, and instead for two weeks, called it a spontaneous attack prompted by an internet video. The moderator tried to correct Romney, saying that the president did not call the attack an act of terror, but Romney was also correct in that it took the administration two weeks to acknowledge that an internet video was not the cause of the attack. <laughs> now, my question for you is, is Governor Romney correct that President Obama, in fact, did not call the attack in Benghazi enacted terror initially and instead repeatedly referred to an internet video as the cause of a spontaneous attack. Um, either one of you guys can start first. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Governor Romney is just totally incorrect on this, and there's really not much debate about it. Um, 
the day after the attack happened, the president acknowledged that it was an act of terror, and he said that millions of Americans heard it, reporters that were there heard it, and it seems like Governor Romney was the only one that didn't hear it. Do you think that he was? Do you think that they were not quick enough in calling it uh, a bona fide terrorist attack, and as opposed to just uh, protests? Well, I mean, like I said, they called it an act of terror the day after it happened. Um, but as far as responding, whether it was a response to the video or whether it was an organized attack, um, I mean, the president and the vice president were, were both pretty vocal on the issue, and they were going with the information that they had at the time. Um, and when the attack happened, it seemed like it was a response to the Serenet video. And then as more information came out, it seemed like it was a, it was a planned attack. Um, they were open with the American people the entire time. Um, yeah, actually, I believe Governor Romney is correct. Um, if you read the entirety of that speech, it's pretty obvious what the intent of that message was. He was talking about acts of terror in the region, not necessarily that being act of terror itself. Um, also, I mean, it's pretty obvious when you have Susan Rice getting on TV saying that it's based on a uh, demonstration outside when clearly, um, you know, if it, it's, it was an act of terror, there's no other way to put it. And so you have various administration officials saying that it's um, video and then you have him blaming the CIA and intelligence, saying they got the wrong intelligence. And now you have a CIA report coming out saying that uh, they knew within 24 hours that it was a terrorist attack. So I think it's honestly there's no question in it. There's some some discrepancy going on, whether it was for political gain or not. But uh, it definitely it definitely um, was a terrorist attack, and they did not acknowledge that. And th- there's some evidence to suggest that um, maybe some of the officials at the consulate had uh, requested more security. Do you think that the administration is to blame or do you think it was uh, outside of their control, or do you think what do you think as far as you know whether whether or not there should have been more security, uh, Kyle? Um, I think definitely there was. If you look at what happened, there was requests for security made inside the part inside of um, the State Department. So those are directly under the executive branch. So technically, I mean, really, it is it's it's president the president's fault for that. Um, there, I think Hillary Clinton took the fall for a lot of it, but there there was requests made for security that were denied. And there's no other really way to, to say that other than that's what happened. So um, to me, you know, there were signs that this, this was going to happen and they avoided it. So this is really the, the administration's fault. Um, well, hindsight is, is 2020. I mean, I think if there had been any any indication that this was going to happen, then certainly the president would have provided more security to Libya. But, I mean, there was no way of, of seeing anything like this occurring. So, I mean, the president can't really be totally to blame for not providing more security when there was no no information leading up to this. Well, when the ambassador personally requested himself, sends a cable telegram saying that he wants security, then I think it's pretty clear that there were imminent threats in the area, and it's pretty clear that that's what he needed. Um, I mean, like I said, I mean, like hindsight is twenty twenty. If if we could have seen this happening, then the, I mean, the president's intelligence advisors are are the top in the country. They're the best at what they do of anyone in the world. Um, and I mean, if there had been any kind of indication that an attack was imminent, then they would have they would have prepped security for it. Do you I think mean, do you think we should have been more prepared for a potential attack on obviously the anniversary of September 11th, or do you think that there was no way that? Um, I would you would think that with 9/11 being the high profile event that it was, that they would spend more time beefing up security. I mean, the Marine Fast team that they had that was going to deploy to that location was somewhere else. I mean, you would think with what we did in Libya and what's going on in Egypt. And with all the turmoil that's going on in the Middle East, you would deploy that fast team closer. And it wasn't there. So there's really no other way to get around that. They they dropped the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think on the anniversary of September 11th, we do – maybe our senses are a little bit heightened. Um, but this was this was an organized attack that, that the president and none of the intelligence advisors saw coming. Mm-hmm. Kyle, do you think that um, – what, in your opinion, do you think should should anything have been done differently? What, what do you think was the biggest mistake made by the Obama administration? 
Um, well, first, I think the biggest mistake made was the acknowledgement that it happened. I mean, th- the fact that they displayed it first as being some kind of a political uprising where he happened to be taken hostage when it really was an act of terror done by those affiliated with al-Qaeda, that's probably the biggest fault. I would say the second one is definitely the fact that requests were made and they were denied. And I think that's really that's unequivocal. That's, that's what the problems are. Do you think that the uh, administration um, is to blame at all, Clay, or do you think it was out of the president's hands? I think it was out of the president's hands. I mean, this yeah. was something, like, I, like I've been saying, that, we, that no one in the intelligence community saw coming, and I don't think the president's to blame for this. All right. Well, um, let's uh, move on to the next question here. Uh, the federal budget deficit is currently $1.1 trillion, and the economy is struggling to grow. In your opinion, what needs to be done to turn the economy around? We'll start with you, Clay. Um, well, it's important. It's important to remember what, where we come from. When the president came into office, uh, it was soon after President Bush had authorized two wars and unfunded tax cuts on the national credit card. Um, the president came in the worst economic conditions since the Great Depression, and since day one, he's been taking action to turn that around. And so far, it's been working. We've we've saved the auto industry. Um, the Recovery Act is working. We're putting people back to work, and we're creating new jobs for the future. Um, well, I mean, first, I guess I'd point out the fact that we just now dropped below 8% on unemployment. So, I mean, I think that speaks for itself. I mean, you have – he's accumulated more debt than all the presidents before him combined. So there's no really other way to put to put other than the fact that you, you can spend all the money you want, but if you don't spend in the right places, that's not really what's going to you know, save the economy. So I think for us and our party, we're kind of sticking with Romney's five-point plan. Um, basically, one is energy independence. Two is giving workers the skill they need to succeed. Three is making trade fair and cracking down on trade um, people like China, cutting the deficit and championing small business. When you have a corporate tax rate of 35 percent, it's the highest in the world. I mean, you can't expect to grow in an economy like that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's no other way to look at it. Well, I mean, so obviously um, you say that the economy has been growing again, Clay. And um, there's a feeling in the country a lot of people think that it hasn't grown fast enough. Do you think that the president's done enough, or do you think he, he's done maybe, I don't know, you might think he's done too much, or what, what, what do you think, how has he handled um, what many see as the worst economic crisis in a lifetime? Well, the president's, he's done a lot so far. I mean, saving the auto industry was one of the biggest things we could do to help the American economy. Um, while Mitt Romney said that we should let Detroit go bankrupt and uh, show total disregard for the people of Detroit, the president stepped up. And saved millions of jobs, not just in Detroit, but in Ohio, right here in North Carolina, all over the country. Um, and he's got a plan to take things forward. There's already been $2 trillion in spending cuts signed into law. We, we're cutting waste. We're cutting programs that, that unnecessarily spend money. And he's got a plan to move things forward, uh, including cutting $2.50 for every dollar raised in revenue. So we're going to be trimming the fat of government and not just slashing like Governor Romney would like to do. So you believe that... Um Cutting back on the budget is as important as raising more revenue. Yes. And how do you feel about this, Kyle? Um, well, I think that I think if you look at Romney's five-point plan, it makes absolute sense. I mean, you can't – if you look at what uh, the president is planning – is, I guess, saying he's going to do in his next term is um, basically raise taxes on those who make the most and then give tax cuts for everybody else. Well, the problem with that is is that a lot of these, these high-income earners are using you know well-paid, well-paid accountants, people like that, to get these tax breaks in general. There's no real actual effort to make um, changes to the tax code itself, mm-hmm. and I think that's where the problem lies. And so Governor Romney's made numerous uh, statements that he wants to change the deductions. He wants to change the way in which taxes are filed. And so if you can broaden the base in which taxes are paid, you have more money coming in, you have more money that's able for the government to use. It makes a lot more sense than simply to make a blanket, blanket, a blanket statement 
saying that the rich people need to pay more and the middle class should pay less. When Governor Romney wants to make sure that everybody pays their fair share, yes, but he also wants to give people an incentive to work. So he wants to cut on the middle class, and he also wants to cut away these unnecessary deductions that are giving, giving people who make millions of dollars 14% tax rates. Going on what you said about um, taxing the rich more, President Obama has stated that he will not sign off on a new budget unless there includes higher taxes on the rich. And obviously there's been a lot of talk about the fiscal cliff, as it were, um, all these automatic budget cuts that to take place in January. Should there be compromise um, here? Should we include some tax increases as well as budget cuts? Or what is your what are your feelings on this? Um, <laughs> the idea of compromise in this government to me is a, is a kind of a joke. I mean, you have the House putting forth numerous budget proposals and the Senate knocking out every single one. And the president himself hasn't passed a budget since 2010. The one budget that came to Congress they voted on was unanimously voted down. There was a single Democrat who voted for it, and a single Republican who voted for it. Nobody voted for it. So I think if you take that into account, I mean, we need to have bipartisanship in Washington. That's unequivocal for sure. But this idea that you won't do it on a, or else, it's kind of my way or the highway. And to me, it's, it's a little childish at best. So I think there needs to be more, di- more done to work with the other side. Um, I mean, the president has, uh, he's tried throughout the four years to work with Republicans. And I mean, compromise is essential. It's what our government is founded on. It's what makes government work. But when you have people like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, Senate Minority Leader, excuse me, saying that their number one goal was to keep the president out of a second term and not to work for Americans and not to grow more jobs here and to invest in our future, I think that says a lot that no matter what the president does as far as uh, building our economy and moving this country forward, that Republicans are going to stand in the way. Well, then why haven't Democrats done more to pass a budget? <laughs> the president has proposed a budget every year, and he can't move forward with it because of Speaker Boehner and, and Senate Minority Leader uh, McConnell. Okay, but then the Senate can also draft budget proposals and send back to the House. I mean, it's not it's not as if this is a one-sided battle here. I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that there's one party who's working to do something, and the other party's doing nothing. I mean, the Senate itself is a do-nothing Senate. I mean, the House, yes, it's, it's Republican-based. I, under, I understand they're going to pass partisan bills. So that's a given. But, you know, you have one side of the, the bicameral legislature doing nothing. And it's a democratically controlled Senate. So the, the fall, this, you know, you can fall on the sword is what should happen. It's the Democrats fall as far as there's nothing going on in the Senate. There's no other way to look at that. I mean, would you, would you not agree? I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think that we're, we're both going to look at this from, from the same point of view, just on opposite sides of it, that, that we think that our party is working hard and that the other party is not doing anything. I mean, I could bring up, you know, the president's jobs plan that he, that he proposed two years ago. It was a plan that was going to put millions of people back to work, um, and Republicans did nothing on it. I mean, I can point out the fact that uh, Obamacare itself was passed on largely, largely uh, through measures that were really unprecedented for what it was, and it was passed on a partisan vote for something as major as nationalized health care. So you would think that it would be more, you know, you can say he brought a panel in of bike of uh, Republicans and they talked about it and they had made it a, you know, a joint bill, but really it wasn't. If you look at what it was, it was there was no compromise being made. There was no effort to talk with the Republicans. It was just kind of shoved down our throat in a lot of respects. I don't see that as the case. I mean, the president proposed it, and he asked for Republican support, and they refused it. Um, I mean, the president and both houses of Congress did what they could to to provide coverage to millions of Americans that didn't have it. This is an issue that, that didn't need to wait any longer, and so they took action when action was needed. And then somehow this is supposed to cut the deficit. All right, gentlemen, I'm going to cut you off right there. Um, we only got a couple seconds before we got to cut to break, but um, really quickly, do you gen- do you believe that Mitt Romney, if elected president, would do a better job at creating bipartisanship and camaraderie uh within the government uh, or clay i mean you'd like to think so with the moderate tone of his governorship in massachusetts you'd like to think to be able, that he'd be able to work across the aisle and work with democrats uh to to pass legislation and to move the country forward 
But over the course of this campaign, we've seen him take a, a huge swing to the right and to align with, with Tea Party values. And so I don't think that, that once if he gets into office, then I don't think we'd be able to expect him to work across the aisle very much. Kyle? Um, I mean, his record speaks for itself. He was a Republican governor in a Democratic state. And he got a large amount of reforms done. He balanced the budget every year in a democratically held legislature. So I don't really think there's any other question of whether he can do it or not. He will. We're speaking here with Clay Pittman and Kyle Turbo, uh, Republican and Democrat here on NC State. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, stick around. We'll, be right. we'll have more on the way. And we're back here with um, Clay Pittman and Kyle Turbo, uh, student Democrat and student Republican. And uh, Jay, take it away. Thank you, Jake. Uh, I just want to go off where uh, we left off about the budget and the deficit. Um, as the, bu- the budget deficit has grown under the Obama administration, and um, he said that the employment rate by now would reach 5.4%. Uh, what needs to be done for us to get to that point? What, in your point of view, the kind of policy that we need from whether it's Obama or Romney, the next few months to get to that point um well the unemployment rate is obviously not where we'd want it today um and like i was saying earlier the deficit is coming down because we're, we're winding down both wars that we've been fighting in for the past 10 years um but as far as bringing down the unemployment rate we have to invest in jobs for the future we have to have an educated an educated new crop of students that come out of college ready to get jobs um we have to invest in in sections like like the green energy field um and we have to just be prepared for the jobs of the future and the president's plan is, is going to do that. Um, I guess for me, I would say that um, it, a lot seems to depend on the future as far as what could be done. But, I mean, to me, you know, there's been this idea of educating people for green jobs when clearly green jobs hasn't really panned out. Um, there's an idea of, of uh, I guess, educational reform, and that's kind of been murky as far as um, on the administration and what they plan on doing. Um it's it's to me, you know, we've seen a lot of money given to a lot of different companies to try to spur growth, and it really hasn't worked out. And I think that's going to kind of be in the legacy of what this administration has done. I guess this is more of a personal opinion. Do you think um, that it is the role of the government to spur, uh, whether it be environmental growth or techn- technological, you know, innovation? Is it the role of the government, or is this something that should be handled by the private sector? Kyle? Um, I think to some extent, I mean, anybody would agree that the government should have some hand in research. I mean, you have arms of the military like DARPA finding new things every day and which we're going to end up using probably 10 years in the future. As far as um, using stimulus money and things like that and giving millions of dollars blindly to green energy jobs because, you know, Van Jones said they were good and then finding out that Solyndra goes bankrupt and all these other companies are, are falling apart, um, I don't think that's smart. I think we need to smartly use our money to uh, find new programs in the future. I mean, the president and the federal government doesn't do anything to to directly control the unemployment rate, obviously, but they they can be an, an engine for growth and they can they can spur development. And I think that that's the role that they're trying to play right now. As far as um, a lot of people have called, they say the Fed, which is obviously one of one of the, their main goals is to uh, spur growth. A lot of people have said that they are not doing their job very well. They you know a lot of people call for the repeal of the Fed, especially um, some of the libertarian parties. Do you gentlemen agree with? With that, that the Federal Reserve is not something that should be involved in our policy, in our uh, fiscal policy, or is this something that, you know, should be handled more directly by the president, the Congress? Do you guys have any opinion on that? Um, I think the Fed serves its purpose. Um, I think that definitely there needs to be some looking into what the Fed is about and what it does. I mean, when you can simply have, a, I mean, you have all these quantitative easing, you have QE3 coming up now. 
Um, there's an arm that the Fed has inside fiscal policy that, and a lot of libertarians are right. It's, it's a little murky. Um, I think you need to take a hard look at what the Fed is and what it does. Um, maybe about through putting, replacing Ben Bernanke may be necessary. I'm not really sure. Um, he's kind of, he's done his bit now and it's not looking like it's done much. So I think it'd be time for another Fed chairman. Um, I mean, I think the Fed has, uh, has done its job for the most part at this point. They're, they're keeping rates where they need to be as far as, uh, as far as on return on investment. And, uh, I mean, obviously our, our growth isn't, isn't what we want right now. It's not at the speed that we we're, we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the Fed's definitely played a role in, uh, in spurring the growth that we have seen. Sure. All right. I want to go ahead and move into the next question. Uh, politicians often make promises and very little time they'll actually keep them, uh, whether they're Republican or Democrat. And the question is, uh, should we keep politicians at their word? And if we do, what should be a consequence of breaking their word? Okay. Um, I mean, of course we should keep politicians at their word. And, and the consequence, that's that's what elections are about, is, is if you feel like that a politician hasn't kept his word, then, then you vote them out. Um, the president has, has kept his word. The president, since the, over the last four years, has delivered on many of the promises that he made during the campaign. We've, we've ended, we've wound, yeah, excuse me, we've wound down the war in Iraq. Um, we've repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We've saved the auto industry. Um, the president has, has delivered. Um, I would say that, I mean, obviously, yes, we should keep Republicans, Republicans, Democrats, independents, everybody at their word. I mean, they're elected by us to serve jobs we elect them to do. Now, um, as far as, you know, you know, keeping at their word, I think it's pretty obvious that what what the Demo- what the Democrats and what the president uh, put precedent on. I mean, you passed you uh, repealed on ass on tell, you passed Obamacare, you do all these other things during the presidency, but you haven't fixed the economy yet. I mean, to me, that would take precedent. You would you would want to fix the economy before you reach partisan issues like that. So, um, I would say to me, the, the president hasn't kept his word, and so it's time for us to do like as I said, we need to replace him and put somebody else in. And I think that's Mitt Romney. So keeping in keeping in tune with the economy, do you, um, Kyle, do you think that the American people have a right to be angry with the president um, over the fact that the economy is still, you know, just now gotten below eight percent? Absolutely, I think that uh, I I think it would go for any administration, Republican or Democrat. If there was a president who comes in saying he's going to change the Democratic, uh, change the Democratic and Republican philosophy in the government and get government leaner, meaner, and you know, fix basically all our problems, take us out of this rut we were in, and you know. I mean, he hasn't done it. So, to do, me, do you think four years is enough to to? I mean, that's a very large. This is a very large country, very large economy. This mm-hmm. is one of the largest in the world. Do you think four years is enough for any president to? to I I do. I, I really, I honestly do. I mean, there's a lot of things that they can do through the executive and also through the Fed, which you know the chairman they control. So, there's there's a lot of things which can be done to change the economy, and obviously they haven't been done. Mm-hmm. What about you, Clay? Do the American people have a right to be angry with the president? I mean, the American people have a right to be angry over whatever they choose to be. But this is this is a, a talking point we're hearing from the right time and time again that you know it took eight years of uh, of economic downturn to get to where we are now. It took eight years of George W. Bush's policies, and to expect President Obama to be able to fix all of that in four years is is unfair. I mean, I don't know. You hear this point all the time from the Republican Party that we're the ones we've put in these policies that have gotten our economy to where it is today. You haven't fixed it fast enough. Now give us the keys back and let us take back over. And that, that just seems unreasonable. So is it unreasonable then in four years to expect some return on that investment? To expect, to respect, you expect in four years things have gotten better. I mean, we've, we've just now seen the unemployment go under 8%, 8% and even that is only 78 And we're clearly not at the 5% he said he was going to be. 
So it brings brings into question whether his plan is is viable. Whether whether he says he could do it in four years, he obviously couldn't. So to, you know, is, does that seem like? I, don't know. I mean, I just think it, it's clear that things have gotten better. We're in a better place than we were four years ago. We've we've passed healthcare reform. We've we've which has put millions of people uh, back under coverage. Um, we saved the American auto industry, like I was saying earlier. I mean, the president has has put into place plans that are going to bring our economy back and bring this country forward. And to expect everything to be to be normal and and a uh, perfect economy in four years is, is unreasonable. More Americans are on food stamps than ever before. More Americans are filing for disability than ever before. I mean, these these are these are things he's, that's going to be his legacy. This is what he's going to have if this is a one term presidency. That, that that would not happen. If there was some economic down a turnaround, like you said, like things are getting better, you wouldn't have more people on uh, food stamps. You wouldn't have more people on disability. That 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 wouldn't that wouldn't be an indicator of a good presidency. I wouldn't think. Now, gentlemen, how I have a question for both of you. How how much of this do you think is the fault of the Congress? How angry should the American people be with the Congress as opposed to just the presidency? I mean, this is obviously you know separation of powers. How much responsibility does the Congress, whether the House or the Senate or both, bear for the conditions that we? have been facing in the conditions we're in right now? Well, I mean, the president can only do so much without the agreement from Congress. And the Republican Party in the House has been completely standoff-ish over, their, uh, over the president's four years. And, um, and the minority in the Senate has just refused to, to work together on anything. And, you know, it's not just on Republicans. I mean, Democrats have definitely played a role in this, uh, in this contentious nature in Congress. Um, but without any agreement from Congress on, on anything, on, on, on yeah, without any willingness to compromise, then uh, the president can't really do much. I guess my point would be earlier is that, you know, <laughs> uh, we still have yet to have a budget. So I think that that explains itself right there. I mean, when you have one budget brought in by the administration, voted down by everybody, I mean, that answers the question by itself. I mean, how much is that the fault of the president, though? It has to be, you know, submitted by the House, um, ratified by the Congress, or ratified by the Senate, and then approved by the president. How much responsibility do you feel that the president bears in having the fact that there hasn't been a budget in two years? I think it's well. I think it's a lot has to do with him. I mean, he's he's the he's the chief executive of the government. He's yes, he's over the executive branch, but he's also the main man. A lot of Americans picture him when they think of the government; they see him. So he has a role and he has a job to negotiate both sides to get things done. That's what his job is. Mm-hmm. And so, whether there's partisanship in Congress, we're not going to deny. I mean, I think personally, more partisanship is being done in the Senate. But I'm sure you know my companion over here would say otherwise. But he has a job to make things work, and he hasn't made them work. So to me, that's you know. Clear. I mean, I just disagree with that. I think the president's record speaks for itself. He's gotten things done over these past four years. We're not fighting a war in Iraq anymore. We're winding down a war in Afghanistan. We've we've passed the the biggest reform of health care since Medicare was introduced. Um, I mean, the president's gotten things done, and. Four more years of this presidency, we'll, uh, we'll see a, a huge turnaround in the future of this country. Okay. Um, we just got a couple seconds here. Um, I just want to g- go ahead and give you two the chance to make any final comments or remarks you have to say. Start with you, Kyle. Um, I guess to me, I would say, if, like for people who are listening, I mean, look at what you have now, what you had then, and tell you, ask yourself, are you really better off now than you were then? And I think a lot of people have to, would have to honestly tell themselves, no, we're not. And to me, there's that that right there is a perfect indicator of why they should look the other way. I mean, if they voted for Obama in the last election, then you know you tried. He, the president clearly has tried. He did his best, but it's not worked. And so I think we need an alternative, and that that's Mitt Romney. Okay. Um, well, I think that we are better off than we were four years ago when we when when President Obama took office. We were in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. 
Um, he's been able over these four years to turn us around and point us back in the right direction. Um, it's going to take more than four years to turn around what it took eight years to create. Um, and I think that President Obama, with another term, will be able to point our country, will be able to get us moving forward again and moving in the right direction. All right, final question, gentlemen. Who's going to be our next president in January? Oh, do I have to say it? What? No, I guess I'd, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney? <laughs> Barack Obama. <laughs> Clay Pittman, Clay Pittman and Kyle Turbo, I want to thank you both for coming in. We really appreciate your time. Thank Thanks you guys very much. Now, uh, moving on, most know that NC State has its own police force, but did you know that this university also has its own mounted police? Here's DeAndre Jones with more. Hey, guys, this is DeAndre, and I'm sitting here with Officer Fitzpatrick of the NCSU mounted police force. Uh, well, first of all, Officer, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine today. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm really glad to have you in the studio with me. Well, I'm glad to be here. So as far as the preparation of being on the Mounted Police Force, what goes into that? Well, on a day-to-day basis, what we have to do is get the horses ready to go. And what that means is we have to feed them. Generally, we do that, and that is myself and my partner, Officer Chris Otto. Although on the days that we're off, they're student volunteers. Our boys live at the uh, Equine Education Unit out on Reedy Creek Road. Uh, After we've fed them, then we have to clean the stalls because... They are not house trained. Uh, then we have to clean them up. Sometimes that means we have to wash them. Sometimes we just brush them. Have to check their hooves. Anybody knows anything about horses knows you got to pick the hooves, make sure there's no gravel in it, get the, the dirt out, make sure the hooves are okay and the, their, their shoes are on, and uh, make sure that all that is okay. Uh, Remarkable enough, we have to brush their tails to make them look better. And if, if you have daughters with ponytails, you have an idea of what. <laughs> We have to go through only this a lot coarser and more difficult. Uh, then, of course, we have to saddle the horses and get and put all the tack on so so we can ride. Do you ride multiple horses, or do you just normally stick with one horse? We have two horses, and most of the time we ride the same horse. Uh, there are times when when one of us is not available when the other one might ride the other horse just so we can keep both horses working. Could you tell us about the horse that you mainly ride? Well, the horse I ride is a, uh, his name is Cowboy. Cowboy is a Percheron paint cross. Percherons are a fairly large draft horse. Paint horses are, uh, they're a moderate sized horse. They're, most people know what they look like from watching cowboy movies. They're the, the horses Indians always ride, black and white or brown and white. They're pretty good horses for their size and they're pretty smart, pretty good natured. Uh, the Percheron crosses tend to be very well natured horses. Cowboy is is really very good at standing still and letting people pet him. That's his best quality. And I imagine that would happen a lot here it, at NC State. <laughs> absolutely, it does. In fact, he's so good at it. Sometimes he'll go to sleep when we're doing that. The other horse that we have is another. Let's say another Percheron cross. But he's a Percheron thoroughbred cross. He's a little bit bigger than Cowboy. His name is Bismarck. Bismarck doesn't stand still as well as Cowboy does, but. Uh, be honest with you, Bismarck is an easier horse to ride. Cowboy has a fairly choppy gait, which makes him a more uncomfortable horse to ride. Bismarck is an easier horse to ride. There's a smoother, more pleasant gait. What are some of the advantages of, of being on the Mounted Police Force? Well, from the standpoint of what we do for the community and the environment here at, at NC State, our biggest thing is public relations. That's why Cowboy's ability to stand and be petted is actually a huge benefit here at the university because we have lots of animal science majors. Uh, a lot of them know Cowboy and Bismarck because 
they work at the equine center and help out there. So they already know them. But there are lots of students that uh, are, have horse experience or just want to know about horses. That's a lot of what we do. But it also gives us, as Officer Otto and myself, a chance to interact with students that we don't often get. As a patrol officer, I might get out and go to the library. I might go into the dorm, might walk the brickyard. I've been on a bicycle. I've been on the Segway. I can interact with more students in a couple hours on the horse than I will in a month with any any other way that we have of, of, of patrolling the, the campus. On the flip side, what are some of the disadvantages of being on the mounted police force? Well, it's hard for me to think of the disadvantages other, other than the fact that it is it is more work than people would think. Like, we do care for them. Uh, so, you know, cleaning the stalls, there's no way to make that really pleasant thing to do. It's not a terrible thing, but it's, there's more work involved. The, the care of them, the, 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 uh, the cleaning, taking care of the shoes, make sure the farrier's there. We've also got a trailer and a truck we have to take care of. Uh, so there's, there's actually more work involved, physical work involved with dealing with the horses than there is like doing regular patrol work. Um, other than that and the fact that they, they are not housebroken in any form or fashion, and when they've got to go, they go wherever. And so we, if they do it on a brickyard, we clearly can't leave it there. So one of us got to get off the horse, lean up the poop, and then get back on again. So do you get many calls on horseback? Well, first let me say that the entire police department here on campus does not get a high call volume. We are very fortunate that crime right here is very low. There is not an agency in the Triangle area that would not be thrilled with our crime statistics because they are so low. So calls for service, not very many. But an example of sometimes when we do get one is Saturday uh, for the open house. I was working with some of our officers. We got a call about a suspicious person happened to be near where I was. I was able to locate the suspicious person and hold him until the patrol officer go and talk to him. And that's the kind of thing we do. And I've, I've taken accident reports on horseback before where we're close, so we go and we take it. So we'll take calls. That, that The biggest thing is, are we close enough to be able to respond in a reasonable time? And how did you make your start on the Mounted Police Force? That's a little bit of an interesting story. Like a number of the officers on our agency, I came from another department. In my case, I'm a retired Durham police officer. So I had lots of police experience when I came here. I had zero horse experience. I had, I think when I was four years old, we got a picture of me on a horse. And that's about it until I started here. Uh, we had a mounted unit. I thought it would be a great thing to try to do. Uh, we had one of the officers that was on the, the unit leave. We needed to replace her. So uh, I was actually the only person that volunteered to take the job. And that was about three and a half years ago. So that's my total experience. Fortunately, the officer we had, uh, Officer Ford, who was here at the time on the mountain unit, was an excellent instructor. And I'm not going to claim to be a great rider, but I can at least get around and not fall off most of the time uh, and, and at least have some control of the horse. So, And we've they've sent us to a couple of schools since, since then. So there's a certification through the Carolina Mountain Police Association. And Officer Otto and I both have gone through basic, intermediate, and uh, advanced with them. So... I'm not going to claim we're the greatest riders in the world, but we're, we're, we're not terrible. And Officer Otto actually had some, a fair amount of experience on horses, but it was years ago, and he came from the Johnson County Sheriff's Department where he was uh, an investigator. You did say that, you were, uh, that you're a retired Durham police officer, so how does being on the Mounts of Police Force compare 
to being in whatever position you held before? Obviously, and this is something everybody probably knows, Durham has a little bit higher crime rate than we do here on campus. Maybe that would be an understatement. I spent most of my career in Durham uh, working around North Carolina Central University's campus. There's a lot lot of drug activity there. I did a lot of of drug work. Here on campus, we don't have any heroin to speak of. There may be some crack cocaine, but we've not seen much of that. Uh, So the two major drugs we saw in Durham that I dealt with a fair amount, we don't see here on campus. And the calls for services. You know, we get laptops stolen, textbooks stolen, bicycles stolen. Those are the biggest kind of crimes we have. In Durham, you know, we'd have murders, rapes, robberies, drugs, domestic violence calls, things that we don't do a lot of here. So there's a, there's a substantial difference between the work in two different places. On the other hand, since everybody's heard of the shooting in Columbine several years ago and then the, the shooting at Virginia Tech, the way that agencies look at particularly active shooting situations has changed dramatically. After Virginia Tech, it changed even more. Uh, I'd venture to say that based on what we were doing in Durham when I left versus what the firearms training we get now, ours is much better than Durham got. And mostly because there are 500 officers there and there are only 50 of us. We can do more training. Not that the guys in Durham are not trained. It's just we go to the range three to four times a year. Durham guys are lucky to go once a year unless they go on their own other time. Okay, well, that's about all I've got for you today. Um, before we head out, when can students see uh, mounted police officers out and about? Well, we try to get out as much as we can. The the, the, the factors that, that sort of indicate whether we can go or not is how many people we've got working. Because many times I'll come to work and, and I end up having to ride in a patrol car. And the health of, of uh, the officers and the horses. But if everything is like it should be, we're out Monday through Friday. And we try to hit the area of the Brickyard, uh, and North Campus, that's where we try to spend most of our time because that's where most of the students are. But we also hit around the, the Tri-Towers, Toda, the Sullivan League, those areas. And we do go out to Centennial Campus every once in a while. Um, we don't go out there as much because there's not many students out there. But we spend most of our time on Central Campus. And around lunchtime is probably the best time to, to see us because that's when we're usually out. Well, Officer Fitzpatrick, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. And for Eye on the Triangle, this has been DeAndre Jones. So I encourage anyone that sees the amounts of police units on our campus. They love interacting with students. They love for you guys to come up, pet their horses, Cowboy and Bismarck, who are beautiful, by the way. So uh, now we have lovely Lucia with the latest installment of Eye on the Arts. This is Eye on the Arts, a weekly segment that highlights the creative activity here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am lovely Lucia. This week in features... Greg Museum of Art and Design here at NC State University is hosting Art Outside of the Box Sunday, October 28th from 12 to 4 p.m. A free festive gathering of artists and musicians with refreshments for everyone. This evening I am joined by Beth Johnson, member of the Cam Now Young Professional Group. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Would you like to tell the listeners a little about the Contemporary Art Museum, also known as Cam? Sure, CAM, it's second year of operation, uh, downtown Raleigh in the Warehouse District, and it is a contemporary art museum that um, really focuses on cutting edge and fresh and emerging artists. So the CAM Museum has a young professionals group called CAM Now. Would you like to describe the aims? 
CAM Now is the Young Professionals Affiliate Group. It's a totally volunteer group that aims to really kind of pull in a younger audience for the museum. We do a lot of event planning that uh, hopes to engage people. I mean, we don't like to really define the ages, but it's generally like the age group of 21 to about 39. I know that's a pretty big age group, but uh, the young at heart, people that are interested in exploring contemporary art and connecting with their peers. Awesome. So Cam now is hosting the Halloween bash of the season, I've heard, right at the museum. Would you like to talk about it? So it's our second year doing Fright at the Museum. It's a fundraiser party set around the Halloween holiday, which we think is kind of appropriate because it's the creative holiday. We just aim to have a party that is one step above kind of everything else that's going on in town. It's really creative, a lot of really incredible costumes make an appearance at this party. There's a lot of really fun activities going on, and uh, generally it's just a really good time and it benefits the museum. So there's a costume contest. What can guests expect from this? The costumes last year, like I said, were really, really creative and amazing. So we've kind of stepped it up this year. We have five categories for costumes and have been collecting donated prizes from local restaurants and shops that we really love. So we've collected actually over $1,000 worth of prizes to give to these five lucky winners. So there's some really good stuff from Synergy Spa, Raleigh Denim, Crabtree Valley Mall, Busy Bee Cafe, Eskazoo Chocolate, and many others. So I think that if people really bring their creativity, they're going to be rewarded handsomely. What are the five categories for costumes? Well, there is a grand prize category, which is Best Carnival Sideshow Theme. And that kind of fits in with our general theme of the party this year, which is a creepy carnival sort of vibe. So if you dress up and win in that category... You get an amazing prize, which is a hand-drawn, custom-original piece by local artist David Eichenberger that will be done of you in your costume, and also custom framing by Jerry's Artorama, which is a really cool prize. The other four categories are least likely to take home to mother, which is kind of self-explanatory. Nerds rule, which is sort of like best geek-themed category, take that as you will. Work of art, which is most creative or something that really obviously took a lot of time and effort. And then, of course, best couple or group. Awesome. So there's going to be DJs, food. What can the guests expect from that? We have some awesome DJs. I would say some of Raleigh's best DJs. We have Nixt and Bling Budget. Uh, They often been over at Discovery and then also Chocolate Rice. Uh, WKNC DJ. Awesome. Great. And then we also have Cirque de Vol, which is a local kind of circus. They do classes and performances, but they are bringing about, I'd say, 15 performers to kind of fill in our sideshow spectacular theme with a bearded lady, fire spinners, stilt walkers, and all kinds of crazy carnival type. Uh, We also will have a mysterious fortune teller, a magician, and a lot of other kind of on-site performance art. Yuxtapongo is also doing some really cool video art installations, and we will also have food trucks and circus-inspired treats, as well as lots of great drinks, and um, Foundation will be there with their pop-up mysterious cocktail as well. Ooh, sounds like an amazing time. So when is this Halloween bash of the season going on? Well, it's happening on Saturday, October 27th, and that is happening at the museum at Cam Raleigh in the Warehouse District. And it's going on from 8 p.m. till midnight. 
it is a 21 and up party, and uh, tickets can and more information can be found at camraleigh.org slash fright. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Join us next week for another segment of Eye on the Arts right here on WKNC 88.1. We live in a world that is weird, wild, and wonderful. Here's Gene Zernov with this week's Weird Science. Making a girl. Actually making a girl. It is common knowledge that cockroaches would be the most likely survivors of a nuclear war. It turns out that these tenacious creatures can survive for weeks without their heads before they starve to death. The reason why cockroaches, and many other insects, are capable of surviving decapitation are understood more clearly when we look into the reasons why humans don't survive the process. First of all, decapitation in humans results in blood loss and a drop in blood pressure obstructing transport of oxygen and nutrients to vital tissues. In addition to this, humans breathe through their mouth and nose, and critical functions are controlled by the hypothalamus in the brain. Cockroaches, on the other hand, have an open circulatory system, which means that there's much less blood pressure. They don't have huge networks of blood vessels like humans do. So after you cut their heads off, usually their necks would seal off just by clotting, with no uncontrolled bleeding. Cockroaches breathe through their spiracles, or tiny holes in each body segment. As the brain of this vermin does not control breathing, blood does not carry oxygen throughout the body, and it is able to survive decapitation. Humans are great conductors. Being comprised of atoms that transmit electrons is great for a neural network's basic functionality. However, the human body simply isn't built to conduct 300,000 volts of electricity. For this reason, when a bolt of lightning does strike the human frame, very bad things happen. In addition to the 300,000 volts of electricity coursing through you, the power of the strike heats the surrounding air to 500,000 degrees Fahrenheit, causing third-degree burns at the bolt's entry and exit points. It can also create lightning bolt-shaped burn marks, called Lichtenberg figures, which are caused by bursting blood vessels. The heat and force can singe and shred clothing. Lightning strikes have blown people clear out of their shoes. Burns aren't the only way lightning will hurt you. A lightning strike can act as a massive fibrillator, upsetting the heart's electrical rhythm and causing cardiac arrest. That's in addition to bursting blood vessels and damaging the cardiac muscles. Fortunately, only 1 in 10 Americans have died from being struck by lightning in the three decades between 1981 and 2010. Now onto the latest science headlines. According to Science News, Genetic mutations may explain a brain cancer cell's tenacity. Recent research explains why a deadly type of brain cancer easily recurs after surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy have apparently banished it. The study shows that fully developed brain cells, not just stem cells, may take on new identities to evade therapy and come back later. The research team infected a small number of brain cells in mice with viruses carrying genes that reproduce alterations found in patients with glioblastoma. 
Each infected brain cell suffered a one-two punch when the virus simultaneously shut down a protein called P53, which normally stops cells from growing out of control and activated one of two cancer-promoting proteins. The double hit caused two types of brain cells, known as astrocytes and neurons, to revert to a more flexible stem cell-like state, the researchers found. Some cells may even be able to switch identities directly, with astrocytes becoming neurons. Other researchers have shown that tumor cells can transform into blood vessel cells, potentially enabling oxygen-starved cells in the middle of a tumor to switch identities and build their own blood supply. Researchers have been reprogramming adult cells in laboratory dishes for several years now, but the new findings indicate that some types of cancer are a result of this type of reprogramming occurring in the body. This could prove ominous for cancer patients and their doctors, because constantly morphing tumor cells may be nearly impossible to get rid of, especially if therapies are aimed at only one biological process within cancer cells. Could doctors be encountering the same roadblock in cancer research as they have been with viral and bacterial infections? Is the disease evolving and developing at a higher rate than the treatment? The world is faced with a medical crisis. Antibiotics are running out of steam. On August 9th, 2012, the U.S. Federal Center for Disease Control and Prevention declared that doctors should immediately stop using the last antibiotic remaining effective for the treatment of gonorrhea. A team within the Semiconductor Research Corporation is engineering a potential solution to the antibiotic crisis, next-generation phage therapy. A bacteriophage is a virus that kills bacteria and is much more specific than antibiotics. It kills only pathogenic bacteria in the organism while leaving beneficial bacteria intact. A phage will only kill a bacterium if it is a match to the specific strain, so precise design is needed in order for this therapy to be potent. That's all for this week. Tune in next week for some more weird science facts and the latest in scientific research. This has been Jean Jernoff for WKNC 88.1. And so, DeAndre, you have some holidays that we should be celebrating this week? Indeed. I have three pretty interesting ones, in my opinion, at least. So, uh, the last Friday in October, which this uh, this month is going to be the 26th, is uh, Frankenstein Friday. Frankenstein mm-hmm. Friday. Yes, it is. Um, it celebrates the birth of Frankenstein and its creator. Uh, so you mean you the author? Um, well, I guess a little bit of both. Um, officially, that they consider the Frankenstein's mother as Mary Shelley, the author of the book. Mm. Um, so, and it says Frankenstein was born in 1818 when Mary Wollenstonecraft Shelley, at the age of 21, wrote the story of Frankenstein. Mm. So, um, I I personally love that novel. I think it's a masterpiece. <laughs> All right. So next, uh, the fourth Saturday, which is twenty to twenty seventh, is Make a Difference Day. Well, that's oh, good. I'm excited. Go ahead, yeah. make, a I love make a difference. Yes, um, this holiday was initiated in nineteen ninety, um, and of course, you know, trying you should try and make a difference every day, but do it especially on this day. If there's one day a year you make a difference. Yeah, in even, life. Be on that day. if you're not into community service, <laughs> then do it this day just for the purpose of celebrating the holiday. Cool. Um, so. This is a cute little fact about this uh, about this uh, holiday. Each year on Make a Difference Day, ex-president Jimmy Carter gets out his hammer and saw and helps to build or rebuild housing in underprivileged areas. Oh, that's sweet. Good for him. He's like, what, 90 now? <laughs> I don't know. He's really old. Anyway. <laughs> He's good. You're awful. <laughs> All right. So third and final holiday is uh, Hermit Day, October 29th. Hermit Day. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like a self-reflection holiday, um, you know, because, you, know, you know, hermits spend all their time by themselves. It's sort of like a, a day for you to, uh, to, you know, be recluse, 
and be self-reflective on the way you're living your life and if you should make any changes to it. Wow, that's pretty deep. Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> well, thank you for that, DeAndre. Stay inside. That's right. <laughs> All right. And, and for the latest in campus happenings, here's Grant Buckner. So you can see. What's going on at NC State? Tomorrow in Scott Hall at 12 p.m., celebrate Cybersecurity Awareness Month by attending Dude, Where's My Data? Where Carrie Dego of OIT Security and Compliance will show you what data computer hackers and attackers are after on your devices and exactly what you have to lose. You'll also learn about available tools that you can use to find sensitive data on your device and how to remove it. Go online to register. Also on Wednesday is a second annual International Horror Film Fest. Head to Witherspoon Student Cinema at 7 p.m. to watch the 2008 Swedish film Let the Right One In, followed by the 2004 Thai movie Shudder at 9.30. Admission is free. On Thursday, October 25th, founder of the award-winning website HowStuffWorks.com and lecturer at NC State Marshall Brain will lead a discussion on the book Imagine, How Creativity Works by Jonah Layer. So be sure to make it to the Cambridge Village Public Library by 7 p.m. If books aren't really your thing, check out Total Recall, starting in Witherspoon Student Cinema at 7 p.m. Thursday night and playing throughout the weekend. Go online for more movie times. On Friday, October 26, stop by Scott Hall again at 12 p.m. for another Cybersecurity Awareness Month event and learn how to secure your Windows 7 or Windows Vista device. On Midnight Friday, stop by Witherspoon to see Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Admission is free. Sunday, October 28th, marks the beginning of Homecoming 2012. During Homecoming 2012, you can run with the pack in a 5K for charity, paint Hillsborough Street red, strut your stuff in the Homecoming Parade, and do so much more. And of course, cheer the Wolf Pack to victory against the University of Virginia. Go online for more details. For more information on these events and more, go to ncsu.edu forward slash calendar. Brian the Triangle, I'm Graham Buckner, 88.1 WKNC. Well, that just about wraps up all we've got for you guys this week. A big thanks to Jay Tomlin, Gene Jernoff, Lucia Moser, Andrew Eichen, Jasmine Shepard, and Grant Buckner for the contributions as well. Oh, well, Jay can take this part. And we'd also like to thank Kyle Turvo, Clay Pittman, Beth Johnson, and Officer Fitzpatrick, who all took time out of their busy schedules to speak with us this week. Thank you, Officer. And from all of us here at I'm the Triangle, we thank you for tuning in. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that just made you think, let us know on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. Also, be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org. Until next week. Good night.